Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Um, we started a we started a study group, which is mostly centered on these two chapters that are coming up in the Lotus Sutra. Um, so Christine and I are going to um, speak tonight. So we're going to do a, a riff in three parts. I'm going to offer a couple of long digressions. Christine will speak to the heart of the matter. Um, yeah, I really wanted to say something about um, uh, the empty room. When I'm sitting in meditation, when I'm sitting with you, I'm in an empty room, and the wind is blowing into it, and the wind is blowing out of it, the wind of the breath. It's just there, it's just happening. The way that sound, can you hear that sound? Oh, it's gone. It doesn't matter. Can you hear this sound? The way those sounds come and go, the wind is blowing in, the wind is blowing out through this empty room. There's so much space there in the empty room of this body. The wind just seems to go on and on as if there was no end to it. But sometimes when I'm sitting, when I'm sitting here with you, I'm not an empty room. You know those um, super corny events where they hand out these ugly department store stickers that say, Hi, I'm... And there's a big blank space where your name goes, you wear it on your lapel. And secretly you're glad for these stickers because you never remember anyone's name. Maybe it was all those subtitled movies you watched as a kid. Well, sometimes when I'm sitting, I take one of these stickers. Hi, I'm the one with my name written on it in large day-glow letters. And I, um, and I lay it down on every breath. That's mine. Hi, I'm the inhale. Though I wish my breath wasn't exactly like that one, the one I just put my sticker on. I wish I had, um, I wish I had deep breath. I wish I was a little deeper. Um, this is my fantasy that I could, um, that one day I'm going to walk into the center of gravity and I'll start to inhale very slowly. I'll just start this one long killer inhale. I'll just draw in every atom of the room and let it pass through me. And then I'd release and I'd let it all go. I'd breathe out my entire exoskeleton until I was so relaxed. I'd just be a puddle of bones on the floor. And when I was finished, the whole evening would be over. Oh, that was a good session tonight. <laughs> Two hours gone, just like that. First hour, the inhale. Second hour, the exhale. Instead, there's this thing I do with my name tag. Call it a tick, a quirk. 
a habit I can't let go of, when I keep putting the sticker onto my breath, and then I send it out into the world, that's my cushion, that's my idea, that's my bike. You're wearing my pants. That's my point of view. Can't you see you're stepping on my feelings? When I'm sitting, when I'm sitting here with you, I can feel you trying to help me. I can feel you working, doing the work of the present moment, granting me the gift of your attention, your silence, your dedication. I can feel you trying to turn me even into a, into a bodhisattva. And I want to be here. I want to do that. I want to respond um, in kind, as they say. Only it would mean feeling my feelings. You know, or if not my feelings, then the ones that pass through the empty room. The empty room that the wind is blowing through. And every time a feeling runs through it, hey, wait, sadness. Don't go so fast. Despair, confusion. Come sit down on this comfortable couch I've made for you. I've made this beautiful designer couch just for my confusion. It's so perfect, so comfortable, so easy. On some Friday nights, I just like to um, dim the lights and curl right up next to my delicious confusion. <laughs> the blindness that's all mine. Hi, I'm sadness. Hi, I'm confusion. Hi, I'm the happiness that comes only at the expense of others. It's a regular crowd scene in here. <laughs> my stories, my feelings, myself. Last week, I helped my parents move out of the house they've lived in for the last 44 culprits, give or take an Iron Age. They moved in 44 years ago during the year of the Yellow Submarine, when successful peace negotiations concluded between India and Pakistan. Nuclear materials um, were stolen in Brazil. 20,000 Buddhists marched in protest against the military government in South Vietnam. In this particular kalpa, the Beach Boys released pet sounds, and the Nobel Peace Prize wasn't given to anyone at all. How many lifetimes did my parents live in that house? And what were they leaving behind exactly? now that my father has Alzheimer's. He spends days without saying a word, calm and quiet and completely lost, and not here and not anywhere, really. Like me sometimes, like you maybe sometimes. Lost in some private dream, as if dreams could ever be private. As if every dream we ever had hasn't come back to become um, that park of the window, our mayor, city world we all live in. Sometimes I want to stroke my father's head as if he was a small dog and say, it's okay, doggy. You can come back here, back to this place. There's a large empty room waiting for you, just for you, where the wind blows day and night. But instead, he prefers the company of his television avatars. His showbiz presentation models do the talking. And in the corporate grammar of pictures, every shot has a reaction shot. So he is spared the duty of having to make even that effort. Instead, he can watch, or pretend to watch, as his cranial circuits misfire and draw blanks, and the cloud of confusion slowly descends on everything he used to call home. Please, don't leave me, Dad. Please don't leave us, Dad, like this. When the only words he can mutter are, um, 
let's, uh, let's make a deal. Or, um, where's Oprah? He says, as if she was his best friend. And maybe on some days, and maybe on a lot of afternoons, she is. What does my mother say? Um, he's not the man I married. This is not the man I married. She says it to me like an outraged shopper um, at a supermarket bringing back a piece of merchandise. This isn't the couch I ordered. This isn't the dining room set I picked out. Take him back. Take them all back. What do you do with the man that you promised to have and to hold? The one who breezily announced that he wasn't going to serve in the army, so the two of you were going to have to leave the country and come to this land of strangers. The one who never seemed to need friends except for you. The one who's never stopped loving you even though you shout and scream and belittle him, even through his confusion, his laziness, his inabilities. What do you do with that? How do you forgive that exactly? How do you forgive him for doing the one thing that you could never manage? How do you forgive him for loving you all these years? Maybe you decide that it's not the kind of love you want. It's lemon lime and you wanted chocolate. It's stripes and you're solid. It's liquid, and you're gas. In other words, you tell a story, you make up a version, and then you pull out your handy trust of name tags and you stick it down onto your story. There, that's mine now. That's my life. That's my opinion about my life. And that's my feeling about my opinion about my life. It makes me feel shitty in just the right way. So please, <laughs> don't be messing with it. Dad just sits there propped up against the wall as the movers come and take the remains of his boxed-up life away. The last day, the last hours of the house of 44 Kalpas are animated by four young strangers, one of them with a fresh set of jailhouse tats still shining off his forearms. He's the most polite and kindest of them all, of course. Mother can have a conversation with this one, unlike Dad. Um, she can find a common sentence inside all that politeness we reserve for strangers, while the anger and the bitterness are left for the ones we love, even if they don't behave like the ones we love, even if we can barely recognize them anymore. He's not the man I married. There's still the bad feelings. There's still some terrible sense that she did everything she was supposed to. She said, I do, and followed the rules, and she tried as hard as she could, and then... And then he turned into someone else. He's lost his mind, and now something she never had is gone. And the way he left reminds me, maybe it reminds you, that we don't have anything. That we're only an empty room with the wind blowing in, with the wind blowing out. And when the movers hoist the last box onto their perfect shoulders... You start to walk through that house, stripped of every reasonable excuse and defense, of everything that made it yours, of every time you laughed in that hallway or, or um, rolled dough on the counter or shoveled that walk clear of snow. And you can feel your footsteps getting lighter, as light as air, perhaps. As you become part of the breeze that's floating through that newly emptied house, all of its contents secured in the moving truck. It's just a large, empty house now. It might belong to anyone. It hardly belongs to you. You don't have to believe in second chances. 
You just have to show up here, here, in this moment. Because this moment is as large and empty and perfect as the house you've always lived in. The house you're seeing today for the first time. The day you're finally leaving. The year is 1916, which means that for two years, all of the dragons and yakshas and gandharvas, the asuras, the garudas, the kimnaras, mahorgas, human and non-human beings, an assembly of thousands, ten thousands, millions, have been busy killing each other across muddy patches of real estate in a slaughter named the war to end all wars until World War I turned into a prelude for World War II. What was it the Buddha said? I'm paraphrasing. I'm going to put words into a dead man's mouth. Is that what language is? Putting words into someone else's mouth, the way a mother robin chews up food and puts it into the mouth of her young? The Buddha said, I'm paraphrasing. It's just a vague recollection. The Buddha said that if you plant the seed of a bitter melon in good soil and water it, hoping it will grow into um, sweet corn, and then you, um, you begin to pray and make prostrations. You do excellent deeds for your friends, for the people that aren't your friends. It's not going to work. If you plant a seed of a bitter melon, you'll get bitter melons. And if you turn what is supposed to be an armistice and peace into another form of war, you plant a seed, a bitter seed, that grows into another world war. So it's 1916, and the doctor from Vienna, Sigmund Freud, is out for a walk with a young Italian poet. Freud says, these mountains, this air, it's so beautiful here. The poet, accompanying, looks at the same scene and hunted by all the death that's happening just beyond those mountains and says, but can't you see that everything is dying? Look at that grass, it wilts and it fades. Look, the snowcaps are melting, the trees, those the leaves will fall. And Freud turns to him and says, exactly, exactly, that's right. It's because that everything dies that we're able to love it the way it is. Each moment is passing. Each moment is also a moment of mourning, a moment that might be grieved. Each moment is a house you've lived in, and then you have to let go. Because those houses are gathering dust. They're burying you. We're burying ourselves with every idea we ever had about ourselves. You know, your excellent ideas, the ones you like to put the name sticker on top of. Freud writes, The beauty of the human form and face vanish forever in the course of our lives. As we age, our faces, our bodies are changing. We can feel it. But their evanescence, the fact that they're temporary, Freud's saying, lends them a fresh charm. A fresh charm. What I think he's saying is that, um, what if there is no God? No hell below us, above us only sky. I feel a song coming on. It must mean that all of that eternity, all of those otherworldly worlds, all those heavens and hells must be here. Must be here, here in this moment.
statement from last year's um, summer intensive. There was this super beautiful guy who arrived from Copenhagen. It was near the end of the intensive. People were weighing in on their last thoughts. People were talking about enlightenment. And he said, um, well, enlightenment, I, you know, I don't think I'll ever get there. And I wondered, get there? Where is it? I wondered that he thought enlightenment might be. On what starry hilltop could it be waiting for him? Or is it right here somehow in this, in this place, in this, in this heat, in this attention, in this moment? Here's another reliably excellent sentence from um, Adam Phillips, the British um, uh, child psychologist. If we're not fallen creatures, but simply creatures, we can't be redeemed. We can't be saved, in other words. We can't be rescued from this place, because there is only this place. Phillips writes, if we're not um, clouded by our, our wish for immortality, then transience or the temporary nature of this moment, or the temporary nature of this face, this body, our relationships. This temporary relation, this, the fact that, that our relationships are temporary doesn't diminish us. That perfect way that you smile, the way your face opens when you walk into a room, it doesn't last forever. It's here, and then it's gone. This moment of being here, here, in this moment, is so precious exactly because it doesn't last. How could I be flexible enough, bendable, porous enough, so that I could let the wind, the wind of whatever is happening right now, blow through me so that I could actually feel it without having to attach my, my um, opinions, my convictions onto it. Instead of looking at everything with my stickers all over it, my likes, my dislikes, my reliable dukkha machines. The traditional religious belief is that um, people need to be saved or redeemed. What, what could be the purpose of all this suffering that people are going through? We need to be lifted up, up and away, to be liberated from the bondage of our habits, our reliable bad feelings. Phillips again, the secular equivalent that's being saved in a religious sense. What does that look like in a secular, in the secular realm? The secular equivalent of being saved is the belief that we should perfect ourselves, that we're in need of radical improvement. Tell me, is that why you come here? Are you in need of radical improvement? Is that why I'm here? come here? Because I'm trying to perfect myself sharpen my head to a point so we can write better sentences. Maybe this is the story I tell myself. I come here, here, to the center of gravity, so that I could have a kind of spiritual makeover. Pimp my ride, pimp my mindfulness ride. Um, doesn't this assume that I am somehow insufficient, somehow not enough? Am I dragging around this not enoughness everywhere I go? Is that part of the reason why I enjoy yoga? Gives me a place to put that bag. That's where it belongs. Um, Philip goes on, tyrannical fantasies about our own perfectibility still lurks in even our simplest ideals. So that any ideal 
can become an excuse for punishment. It feels so bad. It feels good. If there is no God, if there is no other place to be, no other place to, to long for, imagine if you and your face and your life aren't some kind of metaphor or reflection or fallen idea of God or the divine or some cheap bootleg low-resolution hacker's version of heaven. Um, no wonder there's so much suffering. We're still running an early version of the program. There's glitches in the code. Just wait until Earth 2.0 comes out. Then it's all going to be perfect, and we can stop killing animals in factories because, you know, they're only animals. And some people are kind of like animals, too, at least according to the settlers on the West Bank, the ones who are holding their fixed ideas out in front of them like a flag so they don't have to be here, here, in this moment, in this place. Instead, they can take their sticker, the one with their name on it, hi, I'm, and they can just stick it onto an idea. And then they can lay that sticker onto the face of someone's daughter, the face of someone's grandmother. And they can say, those aren't people. Those are animals, and they deserve to die. My stories, my feelings, myself. Here's the question that Freud's asking when he's up there on his mountain walk with his young Italian poet friend. What if there were no God? What if there was only this, these mountains, this moment in these mountains, this moment in this room? What if there is no God, Dad? What if you're not going to a better place, Dad? What if Oprah isn't going to be waiting for you on the other side? because there is no other side. What if this was eternity? This right here, this confusion, this stumbling, halting speech, this uncertainty. Would that bother you, Dad? Would you come back to us if you could swap your descriptions, your delusions, your dreams, your version of things for my delusions? The empty room, the empty father, the father that isn't there anymore. The Lotus Sutra seems to alternate in a divine and, and transcendental hysteria about the, between the terrifying prospect of never having a father around, say goodbye to the Buddha, and always having him around. You can hear in this Mahayana text written centuries after the death of the Buddha a certain kind of anxiety that the tradition, the Dharma, the practice, might not survive. I am the father of the world, says Buddha in the Lotus Sutra. How does the father survive? And how does the empty house stay empty, even while the father, the law, the Dharma, goes on? These are amongst the questions posed in um, chapter 15 of the Lotus Sutra. Here's Christine is going to tell you more.
So now we're going to go from the empty room <laughs> to another world order. I'm going to tell the chapter, I'm going to tell, emerging from the earth, tell the tale of chapter 15. So I will just set up the context. The Buddha in previous chapters has been asking for future assistance so that the Lotus Sutra could be propagated and preached. The myriad of bodhisattvas aware of the imminent extinction and passage into nirvana of the Buddha shuttle from a future world system over. So, temporarily, the past meets the future and fuses into the present. Buddha's past solicitation meets future bodhisattvas in the present time of the story, which I'm about to recount. And um, I'll just elucidate the tale with some commentaries and uh, some Dogen references as well. So I'm just going to summarize the story. Emerging from the earth. At the time, the bodhisattvas and mahasattvas, greater in number than the sands of eight Ganges, came from the lands of the other directions. Once arrived at the assembly, they stood up and bowed with veneration to the Buddha. Then asked the Buddha if he would permit them in the age after he was entered into extinction to protect, read, recite, copy, and offer alms to the sutra in the Saha world. The Buddha declared there is no need. The Buddha then explained in his Saha world, there are bodhisattvas and mahasattvas that are as numerous as the sands of 60,000 Ganges. Each of these bodhisattvas has a retinue equal to the sands of 60,000 Ganges. After he enters extinction, these individuals will be able to protect, read, recite, and widely preach the sutra. As soon as the Buddha uttered these words, the earth of the thousand million-fold countries of the Saha world quivered and split open, instantly emerging measurable thousands, ten thousands, millions of bodhisattvas and mahasattvas. <coughs> the bodies of these bodhisattvas were gleaming gold with 32 features, and shined with an immeasurable brightness. Maitreya, stunned and perplexed, Maitreya is predicted to be the next Bodhi, the next Bodha, sorry, Buddha in the future, <laughs> and has never seen these limitless, boundless emerging, emerging bodhisattvas before. And on behalf of the assembly, he questions, who are they? Where do they come from? The Buddha replies, when I had attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi in this Saha world, I converted and guided these bodhisattvas, trained their minds, and caused them to develop a longing for the way. The Buddha further mentions that all these bodhisattvas live in the space beneath the Saha world and have completely assimilated the sutras. Maitreya, still puzzled and quite doubtful, asks the Buddha, how is it conceivable in the span of 40 years, in such a short time, that he could possibly have taught and converted such an immeasurable number of bodhisattvas 
and enable them to achieve realization? Well, for that, you have to stay tuned for chapter 16. <laughs> so so um, I, I'll be specifically, specifically focusing on the bodhisattvas in relation to the practice and, and how that practice has affected my life, which I will share. <laughs> okay. The underground bodhisattvas represent the practice. The practice which is applied with mindful action in conjunction with others, with engagement and devotion. Dogen often said, Buddha going beyond Buddha. Dogen emphasized that enlightenment, like Buddha, is not an event that happens only at one particular time, once and for all. Rather, it's an ongoing, vigorous activity that awakens time itself. The practice that we are engaged in is about waking up, to be fully present in the moment and waking up with others. And we are awakening to realize ourselves, aspiring to become Buddhas, bodhisattvas. The bodhisattvas could also represent our Buddha nature, our potentiality to wake up. Dan Layton proposes that the bodhisattvas springing from the earth represents fertility, the wondrous, healing natural power of creation, or the phenomenal world. For Dogen, he sees it as springing out of the earth, being turned by circumstances. Uh, it's interesting to note and to compare this tale to the primary story of the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree for there are some similar aspects. The Buddha and Mara, spirit of temptation, are always together. She's even there throughout the whole life of Buddha. Mara tries to tempt him out of his claim to his Buddhahood. She challenges him, of what right does he have to claim this? In response to her taunt, the Buddha gestures the mudra by touching the earth with his fingertips, possibly signifying this ground, now, is where awakening can arise. In chapter 15, the bodhisattvas awake from the earth in the Saha world, meaning this world. The practice that we do is grounded in our reality, which is confusing, messy, and frustrating. We awaken fully to this moment through our suffering. Excuse me. Dogen said, the more mud, the greater the Buddha, also indicating the fertility of the earth and also the karmic obstructions and suffering that activate the practice of Buddhas. Okay. <laughs> um, at this point, I'm going to share with you <laughs> my practice in the mud. <laughs> Life in the mud. A few devadatas, nemesis, I prefer to call them challenging people, have entered my life early on. They may be out of my life for now, but I know at some point I will see them again. What is most important to me at this stage is to see in what way I have internalized them and repress them? How can I develop kindness towards them? 
How can I, with discriminating tenderness, see them and me? Let them be and let them go. One of the things I love about Buddhism is this idea that we can reimagine our stories around our own personal dramas. I know that even if I've identified myself with these stories, that there are many layers to it. It's complex, and there are many viewpoints. And I'm not alone. These challenging individuals involved are connected to me, and they are also suffering. What if we can, through our sitting practice or during the day, be mindfully aware of them each time they crop up into our minds in various forms and hold them? Perhaps an openness can begin where we can see our stories with more flexibility, depth, and scope. A few months ago, the practice took me into a deeper place, a really vulnerable place. No one tells you these things when you practice, that suddenly a murky, dense pain hovering in you might spill into your work. That suddenly, like for instance, when you're in the middle of a deadline and you've got to be an Avalokiteshvara. <laughs> it's very challenging in those instances. <laughs> the I or me feels shaky, there is no ground to stand on, nothing to hold on to. And it was hard for me, in, in particular, to be vulnerable in public like that, and to only watch, watch it with compassion. <clears throat> Initially, it feels extremely lonely, but there's always this container, which is your practice. And that emotional anguish is held by your practice. It's so subtle in the beginning, it's barely even noticeable. In experiencing this phenomenon a few times, it has allowed me to begin trusting my practice. And perhaps only then can the healing begin. Subsequent to this unraveling and what really surprised me, and this only happened a few, on a few occasions, was when I, when I did experience defensiveness or some form of criticism, a new understanding emerged because those were my holding patterns. And one thing I hadn't expected was to find insight and an understanding of the suffering that the other person may be experiencing. And perhaps that's when softening and openness can begin. Perhaps this is compassion blooming. Maybe that is what is meant to be intimate with another Buddha. Perhaps it's the phase I'm in, but it's encouraging to see that in the application of the practice, especially in challenging situations, to see that the practice works. And those situations, in my case, serve as a meter. And when I was mindful and responded right on the mark, interestingly enough, it brought me a sense of mudita, of contentment, a natural, spontaneous surge of uplifting energy. Maybe they're happy Buddha vitamins. Conditions will change, of course, but I think initially it's important to acknowledge that this is happening. Moreover, I see this as celebratory, just like in the story that we are reviewing.
it's celebratory. Bodhisattvas are awakening. <laughs> and just like that little eight-year-old dragon girl depicted in chapter 12, who shows Shariputra, whom she is, that anything is possible, that we all have the possibility to wake up, even in those tensely challenging situations that are confrontational or scary to us. So that our practice, our, our practice can help us see the situation on a deeper level and be much more engaged. And so that we can also respond, you know, appropriately and effectively. And, um, and so that we don't fall in those same old hurtful patterns of behaving and defensiveness. Shariputra is interesting because he's not an enemy specifically, but he but could be situated in a grayer area in our life. And since we all have this inherent Buddha nature, this inner resource, we can offer something precious like her to the Buddha and to Shariputra. The little dragon girl teaches a profound lesson in letting go. Um, I'm going to just talk a little bit about when I came to the center of gravity. <laughs> um, so, In coming to the center of gravity, I realized the importance of building community and making new friends. The practice gets integrated and comes alive when you're amongst friends who care about how you're doing. Not to mention, it's a whole lot more fun. When Mike asked me questions about my practice, I really had to review it and put away the books. When being asked by him all sorts of questions, um, it engaged my heart. And that doesn't happen if you're doing your own thing by practicing alone or reading more Buddhist, Buddhist books. And then you find that you can't meditate because you have another meditation book to read. <laughs> Reading this particular text, however, interestingly enough, required me to review my own practice. And it raised some basic questions, which I will ask you. Um, why do you practice, especially if it's about emptiness? Is your practice working? How? Do you know if it's working? And are you challenged? Do you have doubts? Do you think you should be happier? Are you tired? <laughs> um, as an adjunct, I'd like to just give you this because I just thought it was so um, helpful. By Pat Roshi Enkyo O'Hara during a workshop held in February on Zen poetry. She, su she suggested a creative form of metta as a way to train our minds towards liberation, which I will share with you. If it's a cool day, wish that all beings could be cool, dampening down our forces of anger and desire. If the shower, in the shower, wish that all beings could wash away stains of delusion. When seeing commercials, offering promises of a better life, wish that all beings will have enough. The Roshi says, practice is not something special you do one weekend in the winter, or whatever season. It's your life. 
Each time we encounter something, it makes an intention for awakening ourselves and others. I'll just conclude with this. Okay. As the Dharma wheel turns, something propels you to get into your practice. The compassionate, loving kindness, in a way that this practice points to, is towards a loving kindness that has grit, power, intelligence and consciousness. It's not the type of love that's fluffy and decorative or cocooning. To walk this path takes trust, and that is the way it's supposed to be. You trust yourself. It also takes such determination and infinite patience, but what will nourish it is intention and devotion, such as the underground bodhisattvas who turn the wheel. The practice has led me to deeper parts of myself, and it only has begun. <laughs> okay. Um, part three. <laughs> Where was it? Oh. Just go. Um, okay. Uh, okay. I don't know if I'm going to get through all this, but here we go. Um, it was so beautiful, though. I just want to sit in it for a bit. Um, so the Buddhas of the future asked this question of the Buddha still floating up there in the stupa in the sky. Can we help you? Can we help you? Should we take this beautiful dharma, the Lotus Sutra, the great vehicle, back to the future with us so that you'll know, so that we'll know that it's going to survive? Can you hear the anxiety in this question? Do you need help? The question means also, you look like someone that needs help. And the answer comes in the form of a word that is also an action. Sometimes, perhaps even earlier today, you might have spoken a word like this, a word that's also an action. In our rites of passage, for instance, in a, say in a marriage, the words of a couple are also the act itself. I do. I give you my word. I give you my word. And the words of the Buddha sound like a horizon of ancient people rising up out of the ground. The ground opens as if in response to this question. And the ones who offer assistance are held by all of their helpers. Don't worry, everyone's already here. Already here, helping. Can't you feel that the space is filled with flowers, that the space itself is flower? When I read the Lotus Sutra, the covers, um, they always seem to fall apart in my hands. The books always seem to be opening. Parts of it fall out of the mouths of my friends. I find parts of it written on the hands of my father. And some of it comes out of the radio, even CBC radio. <laughs> Eleanor Wachtel, for instance, in a program called Writers and Company. I didn't realize that she was going to dedicate an entire program to the Lotus Sutra. And that she would do it by introducing me to um, Ala Al-Swami, the most popular Arab writer working today. 
Um, you might know his monstrous second novel, The Yakubian Building, which has become both a, a movie and a hit TV series, or his follow-up Chicago, set in the city where he studied dentistry. He's one of a relatively small group of people who've been working hard to plant the seeds of revolution, to organize demonstrations for many years, daring, daring to speak out in, in Egypt, the country where he was born, against the American-supported dictator Hosni Mubarak. So one morning, a very particular morning, he gets up. He's going to go to Tahrir Square. He goes there each year for the same demonstration. And they only allow, the, the um, guards only allow three or four hundred people. The same, he's going to see the same three or four hundred people there as he does every year. But he flips the TV on and he's shocked to see that there's thousands of people in the square. Thousands of people. And when he arrives, there's this new feeling of solidarity and conviction in the streets. And those thousands turn into tens of thousands and then into millions across the country. Mubarak, the dictator, is alarmed, and in Cairo, the capital city, he posts um, snipers on the rooftops of a stretch of all the buildings that are right downtown. They aim for the eyes of the protesters. And Aswami describes in this telling, gripping, horrible detail how he's some, you know, there's, you just can imagine this enormous public square, and it's just filled with people. And he's talking, um, he's talking to this young um, guy beside him, he says, Hi, I really love your book. He's a very well-known writer. He writes about politics. Hi, I really love your books. Yeah, thanks. You should really write about. You really have to write about this. Yeah, I, I will. I will. And then, and then the man turns, and then he, a Swami hears this sound, this crack of a rifle, and then the man just drops beside him. He's dead. And forty minutes later, there's another man just to the left of him. He just turns into the crowd, and he hears the same sound, boom, and he just drops dead. This is what he says about this. He says, usually, when people are shooting, at pe these are peaceful protesters. These are people that have been living under a dictator for 40 years. Usually when people are shooting at pe peaceful protesters, protesters should run away. But what happened was the opposite. The people, after realizing that they're shooting at us, people were more determined. Even more people came out. I remember um, the day when I went back home, so each day, of course, he comes back home, to, so there's his partner, his kids, and okay, you're still here, you're still alive. He's reading some papers, and the papers are asking this question, how can people not get scared? And, and he says, I found that in a revolution, I found that in a revolution, the I, at some point, the I becomes we. People don't feel themselves as individuals anymore. They feel like they're elements of this huge thing, and they become more and more determined to achieve what we want. They don't care about their personal security anymore. He says, I think this is the only explanation of, of what I saw. So the government is desperate, and the snipers have killed more than a thousand people. Snipers are finally, it's, but it's not working. More and more people are coming out, so what do they do? The police go to the prisons, they open up the prisons. There's between 30 and 40,000 prisoners. And they instruct these prisoners that they're to go into the homes of the Egyptian people and attack them in their homes. The aim of this action is to get people to go home, to protect their homes, to get these millions, by now millions of people, off the streets. So what happens? This is, this is Allah again. There is a popular committee that was organized by civilians, by young people, to protect every street. So every street, every street in Egypt is protected by its inhabitants, by ourselves. No one withdrew. 
This is what he says. Everybody was helping. Everybody was bringing food, bringing drinks. I must tell you here that the revolution was not Terrier Square. Terrier Square has become, for some reason, a symbol of the revolution. But what, but what happened in Terrier Square happened in every city in Egypt. We had all kinds of people, rich people, poor people, and women play, as usual, a very important role in the revolution. Eleanor asks him this question. You've described an important encounter with an older woman when you were smoking, Allah says. Um, he talks about making speeches and about this very important speech that he, you know, that he, that he, that he made, or, except you know, now he's, he's speaking to um, two million people at three in the morning. Um, it's a very um, huge experience. So he says, so after that speech, I was, you know, I was very exhausted and I smoke. So I was very tired and I, I finished my last cigarette and I threw an empty pack of cigarettes on the ground. And there was a lady of at least 70 years old, and she said, uh, hi, hi, how are you? Uh, she said, I love your writings. He's a very well-known writer. I love your writings. Oh, thank you very much. And she said, um, take this um, packet, please. Take this packet, please. I felt like a kind of guilty child. So I said, fine, fine, I'm sorry. I took it. And she said, um, you have to throw it over there in the garbage. I said, fine, fine, I'll do that. <laughs> when I get back, she said, um, we're building our new Egypt. And don't you think that our new Egypt should be clean. It takes a Buddha and a Buddha. Do you remember that riff in the Lotus Sutra? In order to arrive at this moment, here, in this moment, to find awakening, to light up, it takes a Buddha and a Buddha and a garbage can and a package of cigarettes, already gone, already used up, the last breath taken, already discarded, lying unnoticed on the street. Until this packet of cigarettes becomes something else. You could say that it turns. You could say that this object makes a turn beneath the watchful eye of the 70-year-old Buddha who sees it in the light of her enlightenment, in the light of her revolution, which is also his revolution, which is also the revolution of the cigarette pack. The revolution doesn't leave anything behind. It doesn't leave anything out. And so she invites him to join her in this place, a Buddha and a Buddha. Every object, every breath, every gesture between us is part of this revolution, is part of this waking up. In fact, is all of this revolution. When Allah describes the revolution, the people's uprising that overthrows a dictator in who's been in power for decades, this is what he says. He says, everyone helped. This is what the revolution sounds like. Everyone helped. You know, there have been many pundits on the left who have been calling for Egyptians to come here, to Canada, to help us with this project of democracy, to show us, you know, what a real democracy looks like. How do we create a revolution, a real revolution of real democracy? Everyone helped. Even the cigarette packs helped. And in every city in Egypt. Isn't this the realization a realization of the project, could we call it a project, the goalless goal, the end of the road that has, no, that has no end, to enlighten all sentient beings. Such beautiful words. To enlighten all sentient beings. What could these words mean? Um, I found that in a revolution, the I, at some point, the I becomes we. In other words, collectively, all together, as a people, they uncover the emptiness of their government. 
the designated power, the authority that you grant your representative, and they realize interdependence. They live interdependence. How do you live interdependence? Maybe you pick up a crumpled cigarette pack. You approach the famous novelist, the one that's everyone, that everyone's read. Oh, I love your books so much. They changed my life. Margaret Atwood, you're so wonderful. But this piece of trash on the ground, couldn't you please? Would you mind? <laughs> because that's our ground now, mine and yours. It doesn't belong to me. It belongs to everyone. And that piece of trash, it's part of the revolution. Can we look at what we throw away? At what is beneath our notice? Oh, I didn't notice. And see that those relationships, those qualities, are part, might be part of our revolution. In the Lotus Sutra, the Buddha says to the Buddhas of the future, um, there's no need to worry. You don't have to feel the heavy burden of carrying the great vehicle, the great vehicle of the revolution, the great vehicle of the Lotus Sutra. And then his words um, stop. This is what happens over and over again in the Lotus Sutra. Have you noticed that? At some point, the words always stop and something happens. Some happy monk takes his shirt off and starts dancing. <laughs> Flowers start falling from the sky. A stupa rises up from the ground. What is the revolution of the Lotus Sutra? There are parables, suggestions, incantations, descriptions. But at some point, the words stop and something happens. Perhaps the revolution is when something happens. It's something you do. It's something um, that you do with someone else. You wake up together. You make this revolution together. The Buddha stops talking and then all of those bodhisattvas rise up out of the ground like words from a page, like flowers from a garden. As Michael said a couple of weeks ago, they don't appear from the sky. They come from the ground, the ground of your own life, the ground of your own country. Where did all the revolutionaries in Egypt come from? They didn't come from any of the Canadian planes that are busy killing civilians in Libya today. They came from the woman cooking lunch for her kids next door. They came from the man selling fruit on the corner. There were organizers, of course. There were people hard at work preparing, daring to speak out against the, reg the regime, even though some of them would be jailed and tortured. The organizers who were busy for years planting the seeds of awakening, taking the risks of awakening. The revolution happens. The bodhisattvas rise up out of the ground when I, when me and myself, gives way to we, to us, I think. The project of us, the necessity of us, of what only we could do together, of the awakening that only we can make possible. Someone, somewhere, is throwing away a pack of cigarettes. Can you see them? And when you do, you pick them up with using both hands.
we have a few more minutes if someone would like to um, ask a question, tell a riddle, or a good joke, <coughs> or an amusing anecdote, or an unamusing anecdote, <laughs> or a tip, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly come here to like get right inside and you just rip my guts out with the dad story. Because <laughs> it's the anniversary of my dad's death today. Excuse me if I cry again. But uh, he had dementia and uh, he suffered a really long time. Sorry, I wanted to say this kind of nicely. But uh, I woke up this morning and it was 4 o'clock in the morning when he. Uh, seven years ago and I sat with him and I even was like lying in Shavasana next to him and holding his hand when he died so it was just really wonderful that I hear that because it's so difficult to watch somebody that you love and raised you lose their mind and then die next to you so it wasn't very amusing but <laughs> that's my anecdote <laughs> so thank you for uh, <laughs> Thank you. Now somebody tell a joke. I have a joke to tell. <laughs> well, it's a joke that's not really a joke. Uh, you know, it was really profound about what you were reading. me to realize that um, for the longest while I've been holding something against my dad. I needed him somehow to explain something or admit to something or something. And my dad has done a lot of great things and a lot of maybe not so great things. I'm not really sure anymore. And I realized today while you were speaking that um, <coughs> My dad likes to laugh. He really doesn't care anymore about the past. He's getting older, and he makes a lot of jokes. And sometimes I think his jokes aren't funny. But today, you helped me to see that my dad just wants to laugh. <laughs> and that's funny. <laughs> To, I find it hard to let go of the description of the person that's supposed to be my dad. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. just to see him for what, for where he really is, for what, for the place that he's actually sitting in. You know. Mm. Someone else. Finish chanting.
Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free. May all beings be free.